Exodus chapter 20, verses 18, and I'm going to read through verse 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. But the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So we've come to the end of the giving of the law, which followed the covenant terms that were made to these people in Exodus chapter 19, verses 2 through 8. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And then God came in thick clouds, in the thunder and the lightning that shook Mount Sinai and caused it to smoke. And then God spoke the Ten Commandments. They were audibly heard by these people who were visibly shaken by the manifestation of God. And we're told here in our verses today that God manifested himself and he gave these Ten Commandments for the reason of testing these people. We need to understand what that means. Since this is the stated reason, the God-stated reason for the giving of the law, and an understanding what God testing these people means, we will also understand what his covenant truly means. Matthew Henry said of the law, This law, which is so extensive that it cannot be measured, is so spiritual that we can't evade it, and is so reasonable that we cannot find fault with it will be the rule of the future judgment of God, as it is for the present conduct of man. If tried by this rule, we shall find ourselves, our lives have passed in transgression. So the law has been given. And these people, those people around Mount Sinai, have been told their entire lives that they were the children of God, told this from generations past. These people, the ones around Mount Sinai, could trace their lineage back to Father Abraham and then further back to Noah and through him to Adam, the son of God. But that's not uncommon, for all men can trace their lineage back to Adam. Through that one man, all men have come. And all men can trace their lineage back to Noah as well. In Genesis chapter 6, we're told that Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, 
and that every intention of his thoughts were, of his heart were evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, and the animals, and the creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And as an aside, before I move on, as we see this world spinning out of control and the very moral fabric that held the societies together completely unwind, know that it was much worse 4,000 years ago when God destroyed every living thing save those that were spared in the ark of the Lord. And it was after this incident that God once again spoke the covenant that he had made with Adam back in the garden. That covenant which promised eternal life to Adam as long as he did not eat of the fruit of the cent in the center of the garden. But we know how that ended. And it was the breaking of that covenant that brought us to this destruction of all people by the flood. And after that destruction, God spoke once again. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and all your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as them came out of the ark. It's for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of that covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is seen in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all earth that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. So God gave us a sign that he wouldn't destroy the earth once again by flood. And you had to know that for Noah and his children, those that came out of the ark, Every time that it started to rain after they got out of the ark, there had to have been just a little bit of dread within them. Because what they had seen God do once before. And what a great gift that rainbow must have been to them. To see the beauty and the majesty of the covenant sign given to them by God. It's going to be okay. The rain is going to stop and life will go on. But you fast forward about a thousand or years or so after that, and God speaks once again to a son of Adam, of Adam, a son of Noah. He speaks to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now Noah, I'm sorry, now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And those who dishonor you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But this man Abram, 
He was no saint. He was not at that time a true believer. And we know this because we're told in Joshua chapter 24, verses 22 and 5. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Abram, later named Abraham, was an idol worshiper. So why was this covenant given to him? Why was he chosen by God to have a covenant made with him? This is where that inconvenient truth of scripture comes in. Because God does not esteem men as highly as we esteem ourselves. We truly believe that the universe revolves around us. That the sun and the moon rise and set thinking all about us. We use ourselves as a litmus test to determine if there is a God or not. We use our God-given ability to think and reason and to create in the development of sciences and then determine how the universe came into being based upon our understanding of the evidence of God's creation. And if we end up determining that there is a God, then we use us to determine if he is good or not, all based on his actions toward us. We can't understand a God that doesn't think so highly of us as we do. That he doesn't act like we think that he should. We either say that evil is his fault or that he is not sovereign. Those are the two choices that you're given when we judge God by what happens to humans. And if we do determine that there is a God, then we say that he must be a respecter of humans and allowing us to choose to know him or not. Otherwise, he's unfair, he's unjust, unloving. But then we're forced to deal with God in the reality of who he is by his actions, such as the flood. Was it fair that he chose Noah and not the rest of humanity? Oh, we desire to see Noah as the hallmark of what it looks like to be a true believer. After all, the Bible says Noah found favor in God's eyes. And when we read that verse, we place the emphasis on Noah, thinking in our minds that it was his actions that brought him to God. We, that he, he looked up at God, and in looking at him, he found goodness in him. This is what we desire to think happened. We don't read this verse from God down to Noah as we should. It was Noah who, found, who was chosen out of the rest of humanity by God to be given the covenant of life. And Noah was a sinner. It didn't take very long after he lived through that devastation of everything in the world for him to get drunk and defile himself in front of his family. Genesis chapter 9. Are we supposed to believe 
that of the estimated 4 billion people that lived on that planet, of, on this planet at that time, that there were no nice people outside of him, no ethical people, no babies. But God chose Noah, and he chose Abram. And here the truth of that golden chain found in Romans 8, 29, and 30 is fleshed out. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God chose Abram, and he gave him faith. And it was by walking in this faith that Abraham proved that he was a son of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. And then after going out in obedience to God, after going out in obedience, living in faith, living completely foreign, a foreign life than other people around him, God once again spoke to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, that which I will tell you. I want you to hold on to verse 1 there. Because I hope you recognized in me reading that, the same language that we heard today in Exodus chapter 20. It was after obeying the voice of God and taking his beloved son, through whom the covenant that God had made with Abraham would be fulfilled, after taking him to that mountain that he was shown, and in the act of obedience, of offering him as a sacrifice, that God stayed his hand and reveals a ram that is to be offered as a sacrifice on that day. And it was after this event that God once again speaks the covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of the enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And it was because of this covenant reiteration that the children of Israel, those that were standing around Mount Sinai, knew that they were the chosen people of God. But there was a difference that happened on that day in that second reiteration of the covenant with Abraham. The first thing that we should have, that you should have noticed, is that we are told that it was the angel of Yahweh who is now speaking to Abraham, who is reiterating this covenant with him. And the second thing that we should notice is that there now is a specificity being made as to whom this covenant is being made with, his offspring. And at first blush, we think that this is meaning all is prodigy, which is what the children of Israel held, and even many mainstream evangelicals to this day. 
the nation of Israel. You want to see how God's moving? Watch the nation of Israel. Here again, God is maligned and distorted because we decide that he must be fair to humans, that the humans are his main concern. But is this the case, though? Are the ethnic Jewish people those that this promise was made to? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, who is God incarnate, had many interactions with the leaders of this nation of Israel. Even though the nation of Israel, when Jesus walked the earth, even though they were a province of Rome, it was the Jewish religious leaders who were the formal government for that nation Israel, which is why the Roman authorities put up with them at all. And almost all the interactions that we have related to us from the Gospels between Jesus and these ethnic children of Abraham are hostile. Listen to what Jesus had to say to these men, and whether or not that covenant made with Abraham was for them or not. John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40. Jesus said, for the, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And later in John, we hear of another tense meeting between Jesus and these religious leaders. One that speaks directly to that question concerning Abraham and his prodigy. Chapter 8, verses 39 through 47. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Again, they thought they were the children of Abraham. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works that your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not, my, um, not to, on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your, father and, your, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he doesn't stand in the truth because there was no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. So you're asking yourself, if the offspring that God was making this covenant with weren't the physical descendants of Abraham, then who was it to? Well, Galatians 3.16 tells us, Now the promises were made to Abraham and as to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
But Christ had not come to earth in human form yet. The law had not been given at that point either. And there were no children of Israel at that point. In fact, there was no Jacob yet who would be named later Israel. But Jacob was born. And God did change his name to Israel. And he did have 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were held captive in Egypt as slaves until they cried out to God for a deliverer. And it was then that God sent Moses to be his mouthpiece for him, the physical representative for him. And it was then that the Mosaic Covenant was established. And this is the setting for the giving of the Ten Commandments, those that we've been studying for the last few months. And it's in this context that we come to the response by the people to the giving of the law. Again, Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashing of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled that they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They were terrified by the physical manifestation of God. But if you've ever been in the presence of a weather-related incident, such as an F5 tornado or a tsunami or a major rainstorm, you can understand how God can use the most natural of things supernaturally to make us humans understand just how insignificant we really are. Because in those events, at that time, you were completely, utterly powerless against them. The only thing we can do is to act like a worm or a bug and crawl under something and hide and hope that it goes away soon. And this, this is just the breath of God. Those weather-related incidents, that's just God doing that with his finger. But a weather-related incident reveals the reality of God. And at least in that instant, if you've ever been in one of those, in that instant, you know the reality of the power of God. But having said that, we read this, and we like to scoff at these folks because of their reaction to the manifestation of God. We think that the only reason that they acted in this manner was because they were unsaved or because they were cowards. But in the book of Hebrews, the writer there uses this event in the giving of the law as the comparison or the springboard for the reality of those that are the children of God and not the ethnic people of the chosen nation. In chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, the author is speaking about the difference between the redeemed of God and those that lay claim to being of God. Do you understand that there are people that actually say that they're Christian, that say, I am a Christian, and I hold on to these truths, and they're not? Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, should warn us about this because these people, the ones that that writer is talking about, they said they were of God. And Hebrews chapter 12 
specifically separates the two. Beginning in verse 18, the author directs our attention back to the events surrounding the verse, the, um, these verses, the giving of the law. There, verse 18 tells us, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is physically where these chosen elect nation of God was at that moment when the law was given. They were commanded by God to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is what they saw on that mount on that day. And then this is what they heard. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was being given. That even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And we desire to think that the reaction of these events, that the voice of God was terrifying to them because they were unregenerate, because they were sinners. And we do that because we think so highly of ourselves. But then the author of the book of Hebrews tells us in verse 21 what this manifestation was really like. He said, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It wasn't just the unregenerate that were awestruck, who were afraid and trembled at the mere manifestation of God, not the reality of God. It was the man Moses as well, the man that God used as his oracle, the one who had so flippantly argued with him at that burning bush, the one who on more than one occasion would have arguments with God over whose people these stubborn and stick-necked people belong to. But he, just like the rest of the people on that day, they, he was terrified, just like they were. But we, we, we desire to see Moses as the hallmark of what a true believer really looks like. We think that God chose. I'm sorry, we think that he chose God. Even though we have scriptures that tells us very distinctly the other way around that tells us that Moses was a coward, a murderer, and even a bad husband. But we desire to elevate Moses to sainthood. But there is a difference between Moses and the rest of these people, though. He was terrified, trembled with fear, but he knew something about God that these others seemingly did not. Something that is told to us in verse 19 of Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. And no, that is not a typo or a translation error. God came to test them. And this is the same thing that the Genesis chapter 22 verse says concerning God and Abraham when he told our father of the faith to go and sacrifice his son on the mountain. And after these things, there it says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. What does this mean? What is God saying here when he says that he tested Abraham? by commanding him to sacrifice his beloved son. And what does he mean in our verses from today when he says that he is testing the people by his very presence? 
Now, most people don't like tests. In fact, taking tests can, can and very often does cause anxiety for people. But not me. I actually like tests. Um, I'm kind of weird in that way. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, oh, not just that way, I get it. <laughs> but the question that we have to ask ourselves here, though, is what is God doing in both of these situations, in both of these testings, what is it that he's trying to determine? Is he trying to determine something? And is it right to say or even think that God is testing you? And is it right that God would test us at all? I mean, isn't that unfair? Isn't that a, a violation of our, push, or of our personhood? Well, the book of Job is a great account of God testing a person. Oh, Job was a fine man, a man that we desire to see as the hallmark of what a true believer looks like. After all, we're told in verse 1 of Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But then one day this happened. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Can you understand that? Do you understand? Can you understand how a perfectly good and righteous God who cannot stand sin, any presence of sin, how he can allow Satan to be in his presence? If you can understand that, then you can understand God. But that's the reality of what happened. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God just threw him under the bus. There's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job not fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from his presence of Yahweh, verses 6 through 12. And this, this, this is the telling of the event that led to that stock market crash for Job. This is the event that led to every one of his children, every one of them being killed in a single instant. And this is the event that led Job to say, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Verse 21. But this wasn't the end of the testing of Job. Because Satan came back, and God asked him the same question concerning his servant Job. And once again, Satan's answer was that it was because of the stuff of God that Job feared God. So gave, 
So God gave Satan permission to attack the physical well-being of Job, which he so happily did. Verses 7 through 10 of chapter 2 of Job. So Satan went out from his presence of Yahweh and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job passed the test. Abraham passed the test. Noah passed the test. Moses passed the test. The testing of God is told to us in Exodus 20, verse 20, is a pass or fail test. Just as the test of Job 1 was a pass or fail test, just as the test of Genesis 22 is a pass or fail test, in every one of these tests, it wasn't intellect or integrity or moral fortitude that was being put to the test. This pass or fail test is the same test that is given to all humans. This is an eternal test. This is the test for all eternity. This is the test of belonging. This is the test to determine if the covenant of God is for you or not. And don't be fooled to think that God has stopped giving this test after Christ came and was made manifest in the flesh. We are told of a time that Jesus himself administered this test. John chapter 6, you might want to turn there with me. The Gospel of John chapter 6. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. And whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verses 53 through 58. Did you hear that throwback to the test it was, that was given to the people in Exodus chapter 20? Those that ate the manna and died? The ones that passed this test, though, will live forever, will never die. And there's a couple things that we should have noticed about this test. This, test is be, this test is being administered by God. And it's being administered to what we would call the church. To people who were by physical definition the people of God. They were Jews. And second, the people to whom this test is being administered to, these people are following him listening to him, desiring to make him their king. To these, he gives this test. 
And what was the result of this test? Verses 60 through 66. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his, um, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if the, you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who was going to betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. And again, there's two very important points that I want you to grasp from this section of Scripture. The first is, what were these people being called? Now, again, this is the word of God. This is not what they were calling themselves. This is what the Bible, what God says they were called. They weren't twice-a-year churchgoers. These weren't pew-sitters. These people were called disciples. Three times in this section of Scripture, they're called disciples. These people had determined in themselves to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And most of those who had decided to follow Jesus, though none go with them, they decided otherwise once they heard the reality of the God who they thought that they were in love with. When they heard that reality of who, what it was to be a disciple, they turned back. They failed the test. The masses left, and there's only a few left. And to those few, Jesus then personalized that same test that he had just administered. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now, it's not said in the Bible, but I have to, I have to believe in my heart that in their heart, the answer is, Yes, yes, I don't understand what this means to eat your body and drink your blood. Do I want to go away? Yes. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word to eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Verses 67 through 71. These passed the test, with the exception of the one who at that moment didn't even take the test. Once again, there are a couple of things from this verse that are important to remember couple things to hang on to. The first is that God is not concerned with numbers or with crowds. He administered the test, and he failed the vast majority of those that found the idea of God as they determined him to be very appealing, but he failed them. And the second thing that we're meant to see is the reiteration of the second point that I wanted you to catch from the test. 
the one that was administered to the crowd by Jesus. There he told them, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And to the remaining 12, to those 12 that stood, he told them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? The test of God is a pass or fail test. But the reality is, though, you can't study to pass this test. You can't bone up for it. You can't learn to pass it. And the amazing thing is, is that once it's been administered, you won't even regret the fact that you failed it. You just walk away. Those that walked away from Jesus on that day, they still thought that they were of God. Do you catch that? Jesus has just told them, you are not of God. They walked away and said, I'm a Christian. I'm still going to church. They still thought that they were children of God. That the covenant of God was for them. They rejected the author of life because of the author of life. They failed the test and they proved that they were not of the covenant of God. And this is the reason for the test of God. The reason that is given to us in Exodus 20, as told to us, is this, is that we may, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He manifested himself and he gave the terms of his covenant to these people in order that those that were of him would pass the test that they could pass the test. And Moses was one that passed the test on that day. How do we know that? Because he feared God, as told to us in Hebrews 12, 21. But the rest of the people feared God as well, as told to us from our verses today. But being afraid and fearing are two different things. One is a concern for your physical well-being and won't prove anything. And the other is reverence. It's awe. It's concern for the eternal well-being of your soul. And this, it proves that you are of God. This is what Jesus told the crowd of so-called Christians in verse 63 of John 6. He said there, it's the Spirit who gives life. Your flesh is no help at all. It's the reality that Jesus told the 12 of the remaining in verse 7. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Saints, the commands of God are given us to test us. Not to determine how good we can be. But if, and if you view the commands of God as a to-do list, and you use them as a means to work, out, work yourself into the favor of God, thinking, man, if I could just quit lying, if, if I could just control my tongue a bit more, if I, if I could just learn not to be so negative, then God would be happier with me. If this is you, then I fear that you might be one of those that will hear the clear word of God and be offended in your flesh. That you will have your sense of self offended by the word of God and walk away while remaining in church. 
oh, you, you might just turn to another church. You may go somewhere else that claims to be Christian, somewhere that will not offend your flesh, will not hold up the word of God as the litmus test, as the mirror of how those of God are supposed to act, somewhere that tells you that homosexuality is not a sin, that never even deals with the sin of premarital sex, that doesn't tell you that you must give, that you must covenant with the body, that never tells you that you must die. The test of God is given to literally scare the hell out of you. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, did I not choose the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Do you understand that Judas stayed that day? He stayed, but he wouldn't stick. He didn't fear God. Well, he was religious in that he could see some value in Jesus and what Jesus said. And he agreed with the letter of the law in that it proved who was a good person and who was not. But he didn't fear God in order that he would not sin. And he didn't see Jesus as Lord. Oh, Jesus was a good man, a good teacher. At least that's what he thought to that point. But the things that Jesus said as commands, Judas heard his suggestions. The spiritual rules which were given by Jesus, that for those that passed the test, they apply them to their lives. He just ag agreed with them to a degree until they were offensive to his flesh. And saints, please allow me to offend your flesh once again with the reality of what it was that God used to push this man over the edge. What the test was that proved that he was of the devil. John 12, 1 through 6. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, again, not a typo, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge in the money bag, he used to, help, used to help himself to what was put into it. What was it that God used as the test, the litmus test, to prove that this man who claimed to be a disciple, who had stuck before, what was it that he used to push him over the edge? Money. It's how money was spent and used. And Judas was offended that God was of more value than people were. That he was worth this woman giving her entire retirement and security to God for just because she loved him. Jesus used money, how we handle money as a test that proved whose we are on another occasion. 
In the parable given in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a man who is a steward of a great king, who has not been a faithful steward for that king. And at the end of that parable, he says this of those that he is meaning to hear the reality of that parable. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verses 11 through 13. And Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees at that moment. That they were the unfaithful stewards, who as verse 14 says, were lovers of money. Oh, they were very religious. They were at church all the time. And they thought that they were of the covenant of God. That it applied to them. And that they had passed the test. But it was money. How they obeyed God concerning it. That Jesus said, proved if they failed the test or not. And God and saints, God hasn't changed his mind on this. How you handle money. And this is very offensive to all of us, not just to some of us. How you handle money, that which you think is yours, is a great indicator of your heart towards God. Let me say that again. How you handle that which you think I earned, I worked for this, this is mine. This is the indicator. The indicator that Jesus used to prove that that one disciple was not his. It's a great indicator of your heart towards God. You can give him lip service by grabbing your Bible on a daily basis and reading it. You can do religious acts, show up at church every week, serve in the kids' wing, sing in the choir, feed the needy. But if you will not obey God in the area of how you handle the tool given you by him, called money, you should not be so confident that you have passed this test. You will sit there. We will all sit there and agree that to be saved, you must obey God, right? Right? That you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And that's how you're saved. We would all agree that a clear demonstration that a person has passed the test of God is if they will not submit to the clear command of God to be baptized, right? Right? If someone will not be baptized, you would say, not saved, right? But then, we think that we can disobey God in the way and in the manner in which we handle a simple tool called money. We think that this is not a test. 
and that the clear command to give does not apply to us, since we're barely making it as it is. How could God demand that of me? Obviously, he has no idea of the financial situation that I'm in. But hear God through the Apostle James. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. And again, this is the word of God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James understood that the events of our lives are tests given by God to prove something. Not if you're a good person or not, but if you were a God person or not. And he tells us to have joy in these tests, to be thankful for them. He understood that for the redeemed of God, that we will be like Peter and understand we have nowhere else to go. It's only Jesus that has the words of life and that we will strive to conform to his image, that we will submit, not just comply, but we'll obey. And he goes on in verses 4 through 5. And let the steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, lack, complete, lacking in nothing. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Do you understand, saints? We are to be like God. James here said God gives generously. And we think that that's right that he should. Giving back that which he has given to us. Shouldn't we be thankful? We are to be thankful. We're supposed to be thankful for the life that he's given to us. And we're supposed to hold on to loosely, very loosely to this evil things of this world. And James goes on in verses 6 through 8 speaking about the test of God and the results of that test. He says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. Now, to be clear here, though, James isn't saying that God's going to give to this person who asks material wealth or even a comfortable life. There's a lot of dear saints, saints that you know that are dear saints that have not had a comfortable, easy life. He may, in fact, give that comfortable life to the person as proof that they've actually failed the test of life. Something that James speaks about Beginning in the very next verses, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because if like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and it scorches heat and withers the grass, and his flowers fall and his beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in his midst of his pursuits. Did you catch what that rich man was doing when he's fading away? When he fades away, he's in the midst of his pursuits. God has given him money, lots of money. And this man with lots of money 
thinks that he's okay with God, that he is of God. But he proves that he's not because he will not obey. He's not concerned about doing what God says is of importance. He has his own agenda, his own pursuits. And then James begins speaking about the one who passed the test. Verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James understood that the test of God does not enable a person to be of God or not. That's not what this test does. The tests given by God prove if a person is of God or not. The test administered to Abraham proved that he was of God. The test administered to Job proved that he was of God. The test administered to the people at the Mount of, of, of Sinai, at the foot of the Mount, of, of Mount Sinai, proved that most of them were not of God and that Moses was. And the test administered by Jesus with his disciples offending them in their flesh by commanding them to do something that they did not approve of. That didn't make sense to them. Proved that most of those disciples were not of God. But it also proved that 11 were. And God has every right to administer this test. He's not being mean or cruel in the giving of it. He's just revealing to us, showing us, and he's showing those that are of the covenant sign that you really are of the covenant sign. And proving to those that are not that they are not. And again, remember that those that, pass, that failed this test, they just kept on going like no big deal. They actually thought that they were still of God. Saints, obedience is the key, not presence. Having a heart to submit and obey, even though, and maybe because your flesh rebels against the command of God, that's when you should obey. This test is not evil even though it is the test that you must pass in order that you not be tortured for all eternity because of your sin. Verses 13 through 15 of James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, it is fully grown, brings forth death. And the test that God is placing before you today will either prove that you are his. Will you obey God in all things? Will you submit? Even though, and most importantly, because your flesh has a real problem with submitting. Wives, this means submitting to your husband truly submitting and not just complying. This means that even if they were to tell you, quit your job, you're going to move with me because we are going to be part of a covenant community. You're to do that. 
And husbands, this means that you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ understood that for reconciliation to happen between God and man, someone had to die. And he died for the church. He didn't expect the church to die for him. Husbands, die for your wives. But what if she takes advantage of me dying? Well, how often does the church take advantage of the death of Christ? And youth, honor your parents. Don't just comply. Honor them. Do you esteem them in your life at all? This means that you're going to think of them. And when you think of them, you don't think of them as a cash cow. They're going to buy me a new car. They're going to buy me new pants. They're going to buy me new shoes. They're going to provide for this, for this, for that, for that. But you're going to be esteeming them, thinking of them. Do you even try to bless your parents? Do you live to make their life any easier? And all of us, will we obey God in the very apparent and very controversial way of giving back to him as we're commanded? Will we do this understanding that our heart is being exposed here? That this is a test And God isn't sinning against us by administering this test. When you are tempted to anything that is outside of God, it's not God that's tempting you. It's your sin that is. Do you understand that I could could place a glass of poison on this table in front of most people and no one is going to be tempted to drink it? Most people will not be tempted to drink that. It's only those that desire it that will be tempted by it. God gave us the Ten Commands as a test. Do you, when you look at them, do you know? Do you know that you fail in keeping them? And does this cause you then to flee to Christ? But does it also then cause you to desire to keep them? Not because I want to be good, Because I fear God, though. I fear displeasing the one that I love, the one that is the lover of my soul. This is the test that's been administered here. And I pray that by your actions, that you will prove that you've passed this test that you will submit to God and live in obedience to a word. We're going to live imperfectly for sure. None of us are going to live perfectly, and that's not the point. The point, though, is that we live to serve him, to be like him, with joy in our heart. That we desire to strive after the God that is administering this test the one that has shown us that we have passed this test. And saints, if you do know that you've passed this test, if you know that God is God, 
and this covenant is for you, then your flesh will be offended. You, it will. But you will submit to the clear word of God. Because like Peter, you will say, where else am I going to go? And that's how you know you passed the test. Let's pray.